You're listening to TIP. Historically, minimum investments were 250000 half a million to get into these deals. So relative to what they used to be, yes, investments down to $10,000. We've had, I think we even had one a while ago that was down to 5000 That is far more accessible than what it was before. On today's show, I talk with Adam Hooper about what it means to democratize real estate, how to invest in real estate via crowdfunding, what Y Combinator is, what risk factors to consider when investing, a bunch of important terms to know and understand in the real estate world, and specifically when investing in real estate through crowdfunding, and we talk about a bunch more as well. Adam is the founder and CEO of RealCrowd. RealCrowd was an esteemed member of the summer 2013 batch of Y Combinator, the most elite startup accelerator program in the world, and has gone on to raise over $7 million of venture funding for the company. Since its founding, RealCrowd has brought its members access to over $7 billion in real estate investment opportunities, spanning the U.S. both in geography and product types. I know I've heard from a lot of people on social media that they're interested in investing in real estate through crowdfunding, so I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode with Adam Hooper. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Adam Hooper. Adam, welcome to the show. Robert, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here and look forward to the conversation. Give us a quick rundown on your background and a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So spent the last, I guess, what, 16, 17 years in in commercial real estate now is my career. Started in early 2000s doing some brokerage in the local market here in Central Oregon, all focused on commercials. So it was a good way to cut my teeth and get to learn the business through leasing, investment sales, tenant rep, landlord rep, all that different stuff. Ended up getting my CCIM education and certification, which I think was a great foundation to the industry. And for any folks that are out there trying to learn a little bit more about commercial real estate, would definitely recommend checking out some CCIM courses. From there, just kind of started to grow my practice and ended up doing some brokerage at the national level on some single tenant at least products. I worked with some FedEx preferred developers, some Walgreens preferred developers, and then started getting into the equity placement side of the business. So helping those developers raise capital for those development projects, mostly from institutional investors. From there, I went and joined a firm down in, in Northern California where I helped start their joint venture equity placement team. Spent a couple of years there, and this was in early 2010, so 2011, 2012, right around the time when a regulatory change came about called the Jobs Act. And that was a pretty transformational change in how people can access the capital markets, both from the investor side and also from the manager side, from the capital raiser side. And we saw a really interesting opportunity afforded by that regulation that effectively made private investments able to be publicly advertised. So for 80 years prior to this change in regulation, you couldn't offer someone an investment if you didn't have a pre-existing relationship with them. And this regulation changed that such that you could now advertise publicly these historically private investments. And so we saw the opportunity to basically create a technology platform around this new distribution channel. And this was a time when Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all the kind of rewards-based crowdfunding platforms were starting to really take hold. And we thought, well, why couldn't we do that for real estate investments? Why couldn't we build a distribution platform in a marketplace centered around this ability to now use the internet as a distribution channel for these private capital raises? And so we did. Early 2013, officially started the company down in the Bay Area. Some early seed money from some real estate investors and from technology investors. And eight years later, here we are on this podcast today. So it's been a pretty wild run since then. 
part of your bio says that you were a pioneer in democratizing real estate and that you continue to push the boundaries. What exactly does it mean to democratize real estate? So I think it's an extension of what we just talked about, right? So for the 80 years, based on the regulatory environment, these private placements are only available to people that you knew somebody, right? You knew someone that was either running the investment themselves or country club money or friends and family money. So there's definitely a limited set of investors that could ever access these private investment deals. And so with that regulatory change, it really opened up the door for access on both sides of the capital markets. And that's something that we saw as a pretty big change, right? I mean, I'd spent my career making institutions a lot of money in these private real estate deals that only they had access to because of how the regulations were structured. And so when this change came about, real estate was certainly not the intended beneficiary of this regulation, right? It was for small businesses. If you have a cafe or a small consumer product company, you have a long user base. This was a way for them to access capital markets from a non-traditional sense, right? Not necessarily from the bank or getting an SBA loan, but to be able to turn more regular people into investors in the enterprises. And so being able to do that same thing with real estate, which you know, as a real estate, I think it's one of the greatest wealth creation tools out there. It has been for forever, but people just haven't had access to it. So I think that's at the core of what we're trying to do is bring access to this asset class for people that historically either didn't know how to do it. Now that they have access to it, you know, a lot of the educational material that we put out, how can we help them make sense of these new investment opportunities and really try to level that playing field so that everybody has equal access to these investment opportunities as possible, again, under the current regulatory environment. We're going to spend most of our conversation today talking about real estate. But for those who haven't heard of it yet, tell us a bit about what Y Combinator is and how it relates to you and your story. So Y Combinator is a very, at least in the technology world, a very well-known accelerator in the Bay Area. Started by a guy named Paul Graham. Companies like Dropbox, Stripe, Airbnb. There's been a, I don't even know how many companies now, thousands of companies I think have been through it. But it's a three-month program where they give you some seed money in exchange for this, you know, getting into this network and going to weekly dinners and going through this program. It culminates at the end with a demo day. So you get on stage and you pitch to 400 VCs and you tell them your story and, and hopefully you raise some money from them. And I will tell you, real estate transactions and timing don't really care about a demo day date. So there was definitely a scramble on our end to try to have something to show by that demo day. And it, again, the regulations worked out a couple days before we went down on stage at the end of this three-month period. The full rules were enabled from this regulatory change. And so we were able to have a pretty quick win. We raised $750,000 overnight for an office building that we were going to acquire down in, in San Francisco. So we had something good to show for demo day. But it was huge for us in a sense that building a technology company come from the real estate space to be able to immerse ourselves in that world and to be able to have that stamp of approval from someone like Y Combinator for us to again go out and raise money to capitalize our venture to attract talent, to tap into that pool of wealth, right? I mean, that was a lot of our early investors. We were in that early phase of kind of quote unquote crowdfunding and there was a lot of press around that. So to be able to leverage both the exposure within Y Combinator technology space and access a lot of investors that were so concentrated in their tech stocks and their wealth was very dependent upon the health of the technology industry to give them an avenue to diversify outside of that, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. For us, it was a huge start to our business and to be able to still kind of tap into that knowledge base and that network has been just huge for us throughout the years. You mentioned that Y Combinator is an accelerator. For those who don't know, what exactly is an accelerator? It's basically a way for young startup companies to get some mentorship to build a network within the the industry to 
learn from other people's mistakes as you're starting up these companies and really share in the early days of a startup. While everybody's working on a different problem, a lot of those problems have some commonality. And so it's just a way to be completely immersed in building your company. For us, I think one of the most important parts was the sense of discipline that it instilled with this forcing function of a three-month timeline and a demo day that we had to present something. At any point in a company's life cycle, there's a hundred different things that you can work on that are all super interesting, kind of shiny objects that you can work on. But to be able to have the discipline to distill that down to the two or three things that are really going to move the needle, culturally, that's something that stuck with us from the beginning of going through that experience accelerated program with Y Combinator. And I think, again, that's just a culture thing that's kind of evolved since then and has been core to how we run our business. But really, the accelerator is an opportunity to just get in a room with a bunch of people that are all working on really interesting problems, have that network where you can bounce ideas off of each other and then work towards that goal of having some meaningful progress that you can show and, and hopefully raise some capital around at the end of that the accelerator program. How exactly do you do that? How do you focus on what is that most important thing that you should be doing today, whether it's in your business, in your life? What did you learn from this program and and how can people get better at that? I think it's having to be really clear about your goals, right? We've shifted now. And again, maybe we're getting a bit into the weeds here from technology space, but we use a system called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. Being able to clearly communicate amongst your team to have a kind of a common set, that North Star, right, that everyone is working towards. Having that clarity makes it really easy to use that as a filter when you make decisions strategically about what to do and and what initiatives to, to undertake. A lot of businesses and companies maybe aren't as clear in what those directives are or what that overall kind of guidepost is in terms of what are they really trying to achieve. And so for us, it's quarterly reviews of what these OKRs are. It's sending that down to the individual teams, letting them have input and creating their own OKRs and again, objectives, key results. And then using that again as a filter for that decision-making process, right? If you don't have a process through which you make those decisions, it's really easy to get distracted by something that seems interesting or seems like it could be a meaningful project. But if it doesn't move you towards that goal, then you know maybe it's not the right thing to do with your time. And so I think it's just being relentlessly focused on defining what those stages are, defining what those key metrics are, and then using that as kind of the guidepost of how you make those decisions as what you work on. That's how we've been most effective throughout our company history. I think something that people can research again, just Google OKRs. I think Google was maybe one of the first ones that really made that popular framework through which to make these decisions. But it's been super effective for us and something that we rely on pretty heavily. OKRs come, I'm not sure if they come from this book, but they're talked about very heavily in a book called Measure What Matters from John Doerr, right? So if anybody's interested in learning a lot more about OKRs and how you can implement them in your business life, anything like that, check out the book, Measure What Matters from John Doerr. Do you use it in your OKRs in your personal life at all? Do you do anything maybe like OKRs in your personal life, kind of keep those things in order? I wish I could say that I did, but no. (laughs) With a, a startup and three kiddos, my time is pretty well consumed, but I could certainly see how that would be certainly effective. Maybe something I should think about here outside of the world of life too. How do you think things for you and your business would have been different if you hadn't gone through the accelerator program? I think it just set us off on a path for, I think it was pretty helpful to set us off on a path for success, right? Primarily coming from outside of the technology industry, coming from the real estate industry and not having a ton of deep connections in the technology world, certainly from the fundraising side, from you know venture capitals, angels. I think from that perspective, it definitely opened up a whole network of opportunities that wouldn't have been there otherwise, certainly with the, you know, the Y Combinator affiliation. And I think, again, it just instilled at the early stages of a company, to me, one of the most reassuring things was we would do these Tuesday night dinners and everything is off the record. Everything is confidential. But we had some very major founders of these really, really large companies. And to be able to hear and relate to them of the struggles that they go through behind the scenes, well, everything looks polished and wonderful on the outside. Behind the scenes, 
it's this constant problem solving of trying to figure out, again, what are those things that you're trying to solve? What are those metrics that you're working for? And to be able to have that clarity and that permission that it's okay to not know exactly how things are going to turn out, but just to be persistent enough to not give up on it and to keep figuring out those problems. I think that was a really interesting exposure that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise going through that. I think we would have felt maybe a lot more alone in, in our journey. But yeah, realizing that there's a, you know, everybody that's going through a startup phase, while they're, the specifics of their problems might be a little bit different, a lot of those challenges are common across a lot of these different companies. And so I think that was just super helpful to have that insight, to have that network and that camaraderie amongst those people that, again, those relationships even eight years on are still pretty strong. So I think that was the network part of it and the just the exposure to what it actually looks like behind the scenes of a startup. That was super reassuring for us, certainly. Diving a bit more specifically into real estate, what are some of the storylines that you're following with office, retail, industrial, and multifamily? You know, it's been a really interesting last two years, 18 months, whatever, since the beginning of the pandemic. Some asset classes have held up really, really well. Some have had challenges and we can kind of get into that. I think one of the biggest things that we saw through the pandemic, though, was it was an accelerant of a lot of these trends that were already underway. So looking at migration out of major cities into some secondary markets, looking at the migration into sunbelt states, right, and some of the lifestyle cities that were attracting attracting people already, a lot of those trends just got accelerated by the pandemic and the health crisis. Industrial and retail, right, that interplay between how we use retail space and the reliance more on e-commerce as that continues to grow, that had a huge spike throughout the crisis. And I think that will maybe not continue at as much of a pace as we get further into the recovery here. But the interplay between industrial and retail, I think, has been an interesting one as well. So if we break it down kind of asset class by asset class, to me, one of the most interesting ones that we're still watching is office. And with this whole work from home concept, with the remote work and less of a reliance and being in the office on a day-to-day basis, that's something we really don't yet have a clear picture on how that recovery looks in terms of how companies are going to plan their space usage, right? You've got some competing narratives. You've got working from home and you've got remote work and maybe hoteling, you know, kind of common areas in in the workspace, which would maybe indicate that you need less square footage. But when we come back to the office, there's probably going to be some social distancing guidelines, some, you know, how people are using the space and maybe you need a little bit more square footage per employee. So how those balance out, I think is going to be interesting to see. And then whether or not the remote work and work from home will stick, right? We're seeing more and more companies make this work from home and, and remote work policy permanent. You know, I'm in the office today here recording this podcast, but we're still a remote first company. So how we use the space for office, I think is going to change. Not sure how the footprint is going to change necessarily, but I do think there will be some changes in, in terms of how the space is configured. You know, maybe the focus work is still done remote and the office is more of a collaboration zone for group work or, or projects where you need to kind of come and share a whiteboard space together. So I think office is a really interesting one that we don't really yet have a, a clear picture on how that recovery looks, but one that we're definitely watching closely. And I know investors are trying to figure that out as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. I get to talk to a lot of investors here on the podcast and also on social media. So I get to hear some things about investor sentiment, but I'm curious what you're hearing. Tell us a bit about what you're hearing or seeing from your data from investors about their sentiment on real estate markets. Again, it kind of gets back down to an asset by asset class. Generally, though, as an asset class, so broadly, I think real estate is certainly in favor right now. Anytime you have volatility in the stock market, it doesn't matter whether it's going up or down. Volatility is going to cause people to look for something that's more stable. Real estate is certainly far less volatile. Private real estate, direct ownership of real estate, we're not talking about REITs, right? That's a, that's a different conversation. But private real estate ownership of the underlying assets, certainly far less volatile than what you see in the public stock markets. So I think anytime that we see volatility in the stock market, we see generally a desire to get into real estate. It's a real asset that when you have inflationary concerns, right? Real estate is a great hedge against inflation. You can move your rents, and certainly in the multifamily space, you can move your rents much quicker with, with inflation um, to, to kind of help again hedge what a lot of people are assuming we're going to be going into an inflationary environment here before not too long. And the other benefits of real estate, right? It, it, it generates yield. Right now, we're doing a lot of work with on the Reallocate platform with financial advisors and their clients and a lot of these portfolio models that, that these advisors have built over the last 10, 15 years, either they're not delivering the returns that they planned on. And so where do you find yield to support these retirement goals and these kind of wealth creation goals? And so we think real estate is a really great fit for a place to get yield in this current environment right now. And again, you know, wealth creation, we talked about that, tax benefits. There's, I'm sure, a lot of stuff that you've already talked about in the podcast as to why we love real estate. So generally, I would say real estate is, a, is an attractive asset class for most investors right now. Breaking that down a little bit more between the asset classes, office, a little bit of a question mark. Retail took a lot of heat 
in the news from headline risk of, of retail is dead and you know malls are going to be shutting down everywhere power centers are going to be you know they're going out of business i think there's some truth to that in terms of some of the, the types of retail one that we've been paying attention to though is your smaller kind of neighborhood well-located service retail right so think of your smaller strip centers maybe it's got a couple of restaurants you know, your, your dry cleaner or it's got a nail salon or it's got some medical use right now we're seeing a lot of medical uses doctors kind of going into these traditional retail spaces so we think that's an interesting segment of the retail market that's maybe not immune to the the pandemic and the, the crisis that we're going through, but has certainly held up better than some of the other retail asset classes. Industrial, it's been great. I think it'll continue to be great, as certainly as we look at e-commerce and, and the need for distribution centers and, and warehouse space to kind of solve that last mile problem. And then multifamily, that's held up exceptionally well. I think there's a lot of interest in multifamily from investors right now as well. You talked about volatility in the stock market driving investors to real estate. What about the interest rate environment? How are you seeing interest rates impact the real estate markets as a whole and investor sentiment? We're still in a historically exceptionally low interest rate environment. We were seeing some financing on properties that was just, you kind of had to scratch your head, right? And the debt is still really cheap right now. At some point, I mean, we've been saying it for the last five, six years that it's going to go up. It hasn't really yet. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to predict the future, but I think there's certainly some sensitivity to interest rate risk. A lot of the deals that we're seeing right now, the managers are underwriting some cap rate expansion, right? So they're they're assuming that they're gonna they're gonna sell the property in five, six, seven years at a higher cap rate than what they're buying it today. And remember, cap rates are inverse of value, right? So the higher the cap rate, the lower the value of the, of the asset. So they're starting to build in some expansion of these cap rates in terms of their underwriting and, and maybe trying to anticipate a little bit of that uh, interest rate rise. By and large, though, we haven't really seen that play out. I, I, like I said, we've been saying it for a number of years, right? Interest rates can't remain as low forever. And then they would go down and they would maybe come back up 50 basis points or, or 25 basis points. But you know, I think it's definitely a concern. I think prudent managers and prudent investors should try to build in some assumptions that there's going to be higher interest rates when they exit their property you know, three to five years from now. Um, what those rates look like, not really sure. But again, that's one of the benefits of the kind of fungibility of these rents. Certainly within multifamily spaces where, where we spend a lot of our time is to be able to absorb some of those different pressures, uh, external pressures through being able to reprice your rents on a more frequent basis to hedge against some of those inflationary measures that we think are probably going to be coming before not too long. There's a saying or an analogy in business that when there's a major trend or a, maybe a frenzy that you can either participate in the trend itself, such as during the gold rush, you could be a gold miner or you could provide those people a product or service such as axes or gold mines. How do you think about this dynamic with real crowd versus actually investing in the real estate itself? They're very different businesses. And that's something that we very early on set out and identified our ability to connect an investor to a manager as a technology company, as a marketplace. It's a very different business than owning and managing the real estate ourselves. So the professional real estate managers that are on one side of our marketplace, that's all they do. Right, that's what they do all day, every day. They're out finding opportunities. They're out sourcing the debt. They're sourcing the equity. They're doing the construction. If it's a development project, they're doing the, the architectural work. They're doing the day-to-day tenant management. They're doing the leasing. They're going to figure out when the optimal time to sell is. It's a very different discipline than building a technology company, building a marketplace, building an access point for those investments to be made. So we've always looked at it as our place in this industry is really as creating that access point right, and helping people 
understand from an educational perspective and some of the risk work that we're doing on the reallocate side, understand how to make sense of some of these investments now that they have the access to it, because owning and managing real estate is a completely different business than what we're in. And we've even seen the flip side of that, right? We've seen a number of real estate companies that we've worked with in the past think, oh, wow, this is super easy. We'll just go build our own website and we'll create a crowdfunding portal. And they'll spend you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in trying to spin up a, an online investment portal and just fail miserably because that's a very different business than what they're used to doing, which is owning and managing real estate. So I think the ability for what we're providing in terms of this access to these real estate investments gives people that exposure to this asset class and it gives them the ability to partner directly with those underlying real estate managers and, and own those assets. Whereas we see ourselves as the platform that can help make that happen, right? We haven't ever had desires to own our own real estate, to build our own portfolio of real estate that we own as a principal. It's just a very different business and, and a completely different operating model than what we were looking to get into when we started the company. When an investor goes to a platform like RealCrowd and they're looking to make an investment, why shouldn't they pick the investment that just has the highest IRR or the highest cash on cash or whatever the return metric they're looking at? Why shouldn't they just pick the one that has the highest expected return? Because generally picking investments solely on a target return is just not the best investment philosophy. <laughs> so most can agree with that. We started eight years ago. It was either the first or second ebook that we wrote that was called Start With Risk. And that's just something that's been core to our philosophy of, of how the asset class we think should be viewed, right? There are, with any investment, there are risks. Certainly when you're looking at, at private real estate, there's, there's risks involved in that as well. And that's something, again, is, you know, as we talk a little bit more about what we've been doing on the reallocate side with our registered investment advisor hat on really narrowing in on those risks. And I think it's also important to understand that those metrics and kind of the main three that we see are it's going to be a target IRR, a target cash on cash return, and a target equity multiple. They're, they're just that, right? They're targets. So those are, those are assumptions on financial model based on the information that the sponsor knows and the kind of conditions of the market and the, you know, the rental role. And they're a projection of what you might earn in that asset. And I think there's maybe an over-reliance on those as gospel when investors look at those, whether it's on our platform or on others. So really understanding that those are a target. Those are not, you know, it's not a guarantee. Certainly good managers will hopefully have a little higher tolerance around their ability to deliver what those targets are. But we think there's a lot more that should go into investment decision from the lens of risk than just looking at those targets when, when you look at investment. When I look at some of these offerings, I see the minimum investment is between 25000 30000 and 50000 We talk about how the JOBS Act makes these crowdfunding investments more accessible to everyday people. Do you think it's really accessible to everyday people with minimum investments of, say, $25,000? Do you see enough people being able to access it with such a high minimum? Yes, there's a couple facets of that, right? So there's a couple different regulatory structures under which platforms like ours and the managers that are raising capital can operate. So our platform, you have to be an accredited investor, first of all, right? So you have to have a minimum net worth and a minimum income threshold. Once you hit that, then you can access these private placement offerings. Historically, minimum investments were 250000 half a million to get into these deals. So relative to what they used to be, yes. Investments down to $10,000. We've had, I think we even had one a while ago that was down to 5000 That is far more accessible than what it was before, but there still is that accreditation barrier on, on our platform. There are some other avenues and some other platforms out there operating under a different regulatory environment where non-accredited investors can participate as well. And I think those are down even to maybe a couple hundred dollars to get access to those. So as part of that same regulatory shift with the JOBS Act, there were a couple different avenues, I guess you can say, how these investments can be offered and who's eligible to participate in them. It is something that 
you know, we would love to have more opportunities for non-accredited investors on our platform. But the nature of the managers that we work with, not everybody is willing to go through that work, basically, to open those up to these different regulatory complexities uh, because it is it's quite complex so if you're going to do it's called regulation a or a plus offering for non-accredited investors you know it's probably a three to five hundred thousand dollar legal lift to get those documents approved through you know through legal and through the sec it's maybe a six to nine month period to get that through the sec and then once you have that you can then go sell it to non-accredited investors all around the country um so there's a pretty high bar of people that are willing to go to that work to get those those kind of offerings out there in the market um, a lot of the managers that we work with, though, you know, they're used to doing it in a more traditional sense. And so for us to be able to get those minimum investments down to 10% of what they used to be, um, that's a pretty big shift of how that used to work. But I do agree, there is certainly more that can be done, something we're keeping an eye on regulations. You know, we're, we're very much trying to work towards where we can have an offering for non-accredited investors on our platform as well at some point in the future. On the surface, it seems like it might still have a bit of a barrier with such a high minimum. But when you look at it relative to what it used to be, I mean, it makes complete sense how it's a lot more accessible today than it was prior to the Jobs Act. I want to dive through some of the most common key terms I think that you need to know that investors who are listening to the show might not know yet that you should understand before making any investments like this. And there are a handful of them, five or six of them that I want to run through. What is a real estate sponsor? Yeah. So real estate sponsor, they're effectively the, they're the one that's running the investment, right? So they're the ones that are out there. They're going to be doing, they're finding the deals. They're putting together all the investment documentation. They're the ones that are actually running the investment. Right. So they're the operating company that's going to be in charge of that investment. Typically, when we talk about a real estate sponsor, investors are going to be investing in a passive manner. So there's not going to be any expectation for these investors coming through a platform like ours to be involved in any active management. So they're, they're pretty passive investors. And the manager, sponsor, and those terms are kind of used interchangeably, manager or sponsor. Again, they're the ones that are actually executing the business and the strategy. So if it's a development, they're the ones that are going to be hiring a general contractor because they're going to be overseeing the development of it. If it's an apartment building, they're going to be doing the leasing. They're going to hire a property manager to do the on-site work. They're the ones that are going to be making the decisions at the day-to-day level for the property. And then again, ultimately determining when is the optimal time to sell, right? That's what you're partnering with that sponsor to run the investment. And that, again, we think one of the most important parts of investing in these private deals is really making sure that you have trust that you're working with a manager that you're comfortable with is going to make those decisions in the best interest of the investment and of your money that you're investing with them. What is an IRR? I hear this thrown around a lot as a return metric. And I think a lot of new investors might be not completely sure as to what this is, whether they're doing a crowdfunding investment, whether they're making their own investment, whether they're analyzing a deal, whatever the case is, IRRs show up a lot in real estate analysis. So walk us through exactly what an IRR is. Yeah, so an IRR, it's effectively the annual return of your money over the lifetime of an investment, right? And it takes into consideration the return on your money and a return of your money. So it's a very complex calculation. Again, if anybody's using Excel out there, there's, you know, you can use IRR, you can use XIRR. Um, but basically what you can take away from that is it's kind of the, the annual rate of return and it's internal because it's not taking into consideration the external factors, right? It's not taking into consideration, you know, an external reinvestment rate. It's not taking into consideration anything outside of the investment. And purely looking at the timing of cash flows from that investment. So you invest, you know, 100,000 in day one, you're going to get, or 25,000 or 10,000 in day one, you're going to get some kind of a cash flow return hopefully throughout the period of that investment. And then when the asset sells, you're going to get hopefully your money back and plus some appreciation. And so the IRR is effectively kind of your compound rate of return 
over that entire period on your money and, and including the timing of the return of your money at the end. What is an equity multiple? Equity multiple is a little bit easier, uh, a little bit easier to understand. It's, it's really a measure of wealth creation, right? That's how we look at it. An equity multiple is simply, what is the total amount of money that you get back divided by the total amount of money that you put in over the life of that investment? So again, using round numbers, you invest $100,000. Over a five-year period, you're going to get you know, maybe $50,000 of cash flow return from that asset. And then you're going to get $150,000 at the end when the asset sells. So you get your money back plus the return. In total, you've received $200,000 of, of return back from that investment divided by the $100,000 you've invested at the, at the initial period. And you have a 2.0 equity multiple. So it's really like more of a total return metric that we look at. And it's kind of just easy to conceptualize. If I put in X, I'm targeted to get back some multiple of that. And that's, again, kind of a benchmark that you can look at to look at more of a wealth creation. And, and I think it's interesting to note also the, the RR and the equity multiple can kind of be opposed at times because IRR is so focused on the timing of those cash flows rather than just the gross amount of those cash flows. If you have a really high IRR on a really short-term deal, you might not have such a high equity multiple. And, and conversely, if you have a, you know, a 10-year hold that's generating a lot of cash flow, you're going to have a really high equity multiple but your annual IRR might be a little bit lower. So I think it's important to note just the interplay between those two numbers, somewhat working in opposition, but both, again, kind of standard financial metrics that you're going to see on most investment opportunities as, again, as a target for what the sponsor is projecting within that investment. And there's one more kind of return metric I want to look at, and that is preferred return. What exactly is it? How is it different than IRR and equity multiple? Yeah, preferred return is a more of a structure metric. So it's not necessarily a return metric. When you look at the structure of investment, it basically governs, you know, the partnership structure governs who gets paid what, when. A preferred return is, again, there's one of the challenges of our industry is every document set is going to be a little bit different. So there's some nuances to how preferred returns function. But generally, it's the amount of money that the investors are going to receive as a return on their money prior to the sponsor receiving any kind of a promote or carried interest in the investment. So say you have a preferred return of 9%. What that means typically is that the investors are going to receive 9% of their cash flow. So say you know, there's a, a deal that's going to gross at 15% IRR. With a 9% preferred return, the investors are going to get up to a 9% return. They're going to get all the money up to that 9% return. And then anything over 9%, the sponsor is typically going to get a promote or carry in, you know, in the venture world, it's called a carried interest. They're going to get a promote beyond that. So they're going to get an outsized portion of the returns beyond that preferred return rate, generally where from 20 to 30%, depending on how the waterfall is structured. So you can think of that as investors generally will get up to that percentage of a return, usually it's an IRR target. And then anything beyond that, the sponsors are going to participate in those returns beyond what they would have just again compared to suit. Can get some jargon here? So that's a way to kind of benchmark structure of investment, but not necessarily a return projection. You know, we'll see those vary anywhere from seven percent on the low end. Most are going to be like kind of eight to ten percent. Anything in the double digits, depending on the strategy, is a little bit, a little bit outside of norm. So generally, we'll see this in kind of seven to nine percent range as a preferred return. Then anything beyond that is where the sponsor is going to participate in those returns at a higher level than they would before that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. One of the most common questions I get from people who are interested in investing in other real estate deals, whether it's through crowdfunding or through their own deal source, how do distributions work? We'll talk in kind of generalities because every investment is unique, right? And so these are all things that you'll find in the PPM. And without question, 100% we recommend you read the PPM, right? That's the document that has all the risk factors. That's a document that explains exactly how this preferred return is going to work. Um, it will explain how distributions are going to be handled, when they're going to be made. And again, that's a document that really covers who's, you know, who's making what decisions and who gets paid what, when. So distributions, you know, most investments, if they're cash flowing, they're going to make a quarterly distribution of those cash flows. Um, getting super simplified, right? At the asset level, tenants pay rent. There's expenses at the property of operating it. There's a mortgage that's, that's usually owed if, you know, if they have any debt against the property. And then whatever's left over is generally going to be distributed out for cash flow to the investors based on your percentage ownership in the investment. Um, again, most of the time we see those coming as quarterly distributions. Some of the managers we work with, they'll distribute it monthly. Maybe over the 300 plus or minus deals that we've done, we've seen one that does annual distributions, a couple that maybe do annual distributions. Uh, but generally, you're going to get a, a cash you know, a return uh, quarterly, assuming that there's enough cash to distribute at the project, depending on the strategy of the investment. The last term I want to talk about is real estate fracking. What exactly is that? Yeah, so that was a concept friend Steve Weichel at, uh, at MIT, and, and maybe we can, we can throw a link to a, a, one of our podcasts in the show notes where we talked about that. It was the concept that, again, I think we've seen, he was talking about this long before the pandemic, we've seen accelerate during the pandemic, and it's effectively 
how are you using this space, right? What is most optimal use for this space? So co-working, right? We work taking what used to be a 10,000 square foot office and breaking that down into desks, um, looking at some you know, Airbnb, right? Taking a home and breaking that down into a couch that you can rent or, you know, a, a room that you can rent. Um, looking at parking and, and uh, you know, some of the like Ubers of the world and, and ride sharing services and rental car companies that are now you can rent by the hour. It's the idea of taking a historic use of an asset and then breaking that down into a much more fragmented piece. Um, and again, it's something, you know, WeWork has been a fascinating story to watch over the last handful of years. We'll see how that, how that plays out. But I think what they covered is, again, this, this kind of change in how we use our space and, and getting more granular in terms of the units in which you can use that space and how you can monetize that from the, the landlord or from the operator's perspective. So it's an interesting concept of, again, this change that was already underfoot before the, the pandemic and the crisis. Um, but I think we definitely saw an accelerant on more of that. And I think we'll see more of that going forward, right? Certainly when we talk about office space usage, the conversation we had before of, you know, how do you plan to use your space? I think we'll see more of that kind of hoteling, right? We'll see more of a co-working space being the norm. We'll see more remote work with more of a collaborative environment for the office use versus the, the typical kind of cubes in a corner office that we would see before. Being more granular in how we use the space and being hopefully more efficient in what we can do with the space. That's what the concept behind the, the real estate fracking concept that uh, Steve Weichel was, was sharing with us. Break down each of the risk factors you consider when you're looking at risk, and then tell us which ones you are focusing on. Yeah. So this is a lot of the work that we've been doing on the reallocate side. So a handful of years ago, we saw that there was a need to help people understand risk more than what you know, the information that we were doing before, right? We've got our eBooks, we've got our podcasts, uh, we do a lot of educational content on the marketplace side, but there was still a need to, to help people understand risk through a different lens. And so we started down a path of trying to figure out how can we actually quantify the risk in these real estate investments. And I always thought it was funny that we, in our industry, we talk about a risk-adjusted return, but there's no way to measure the amount of risk that you're taking to have a conversation about risk-adjusted return, right? We set out to see if we could quantify the risk of these different real estate investments understand where on x axis of risk you are and then you can determine if this is a reasonable return or not for that that project and in doing so we spent a lot of time kind of canvassing all these different areas of risk and we, and we we've narrowed it down to five main areas of risk that we focus on again for, for building out this quantitative model and those five in the market the manager the physical asset itself how the investments capitalized and the partnership structure and we've talked a little bit about some of those different components and, and we can kind of dig into to each of those individually. But really our focus is how can we quantitatively distill these risks down into something that we can we can understand and communicate to investors and their financial advisors, and then you use that classification of risk to build a portfolio strategy around it. And so it's, there's a couple of different components there, but ultimately at the end of the day, our goal with Reallocate and our registration as an investment advisor ourselves is to help people make a better risk-informed decision and, and build a portfolio of appropriate risk, kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, focusing on building that portfolio of risk rather than just focusing on the return component, uh, which we think, it, again, it's a, it's a more foundationally sound way of looking at these investments rather than just focusing on our target return metric. As we get towards the end of the show, we have a segment called The Action Plan, where we find out three things for everybody listening to the show to go ahead and implement in their life and actually take action on from this episode. So the first thing is, what is a habit or principle that you do in your life that has had a big impact on your success, whether it be in the real estate world that you did before, whether it be as an entrepreneur, 
whatever it is, what is a habit or principle that you have in your life that not enough people do but should? Yeah, I think we can get that back to what we were talking about before with goal setting and OKRs, right? And having the discipline to stick with that process. It, it can be challenging, no doubt. It can take a lot of time and, and can feel like it's not actually doing the work. I think that's something that I've struggled with is the, the planning side of things isn't necessarily as exciting as, as the doing side of things, right? But I continue to come back to the realization that the planning is the work, right? As a leader of a company, that is my job is to set the strategy and to set the goals that we need to try to achieve. So that's definitely something I would say is, is a huge aspect of, of how we run our company. I would recommend doing some research on OKRs and kind of looking at that as a framework. And beyond that, you're not being afraid to make hard decisions. Every day you're faced with hard decisions and it's very easy to kind of kick the can and, and not address those head on. But when you're, when you're running a startup, you often don't have the luxury of kicking the can, right? You have to make those, you have to address those hard decisions. Quick, decisive action to me uh, is, is far more effective than kind of long drawn out maybe. So I think combining, combining that, that framework to set the, the bounds of what those decisions can be looked at through and then not being afraid to take action when necessary. Uh, I think those are two pretty effective keys of, of how we've run our business and I think that, that have helped us get to the success that we've had. What has been the most influential book in your life? That's a really good one. From a business perspective, I would say it's probably The E-Myth by uh, Robert Gerber, which again, kind of gets back into what we we're just talking about, right? The difference of working on your business versus working in your business. I think that was, that was a very influential book early on for me. Outside of that, I'm a big golfer. And so Golf is Not a Game of Perfect by uh, Drew Bob Rotella. Can't recommend that book enough to anybody that's uh, interested in any kind of the sports psychology side of things, which again, you can also use in business. Great book. When this episode is over, what is one action anybody listening to the show can take to help improve their life, career, or business? You know, I think as it relates to, to looking at you know, what we've been talking about, real estate investing, really defining around some of those risks that we've discussed, right? Getting a, an action plan of, of what you're looking for and being really clear with where your risk tolerance is and, and being able to identify those as you go forward. Using that as a framework to ask the questions. That's the other side of it too is, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions, right? If, if there's something that you're not comfortable with, if there's something that you're not necessarily understanding, don't be afraid to ask that question because it's, it's important, right? And I think a lot of people kind of get intimidated by asking questions, certainly in our space that we see when they're working with a, a real estate manager that's buying a $25 million building. A lot of people get intimidated to ask them what they might feel is a simple question, but, you know, ask the question, be curious and, and never stop trying to continue learning and, you know, expanding your tool set that you have to, to make these decisions with. Speaking of asking questions, I always wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So Adam, what question do you have for me? I think it's, I'm just kind of curious, you, you get to talk to a lot of real estate folks. What are you seeing in terms of where the industry is going? What are you getting from your listenership? in terms of their interest in the asset class, right? I think that's, we're always interested in kind of investor sentiment as well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious from your seat, what are you, what are you seeing out there? What are, what are you hearing on the streets from how investors are, are looking at the asset class now? So from my audience and the people that I talk to, whether it's from people who listen to the podcast or follow on social media or anything like that. So basically anybody that's in my kind of community or ecosystem typically is interested in how to get their very first couple deals, whether it's their first deal, there's few deals. And so typically those people are interested in those either single family or small multifamily type properties, not so much office or large multifamily or apartment buildings or anything like that. 
I do have some people who are interested in in crowdfunding. I do get some people that reach out and are interested in that. But for the most part, I think most people are interested in house hacking and really getting their first rentals. And in terms of sentiment, I do have quite a few people who reach out and ask whether now is the right time to invest, how they should consider market conditions, timing, whether I'm investing, you know, things like that. And so that is a common question that I get. It doesn't seem to be uniform across everybody. I think some people are willing to invest right now. Some people are waiting. Some people see other opportunities as better. So they like real estate, but they think Bitcoin might be better or they think think NFTs might be better or something else out there has caught their interest. And so while they're interested in real estate and it's kind of on the back burner for them, they're going to look at other things for now. It's kind of really honestly really spread out in my community and ecosystem. And I think that's the... you. Crypto has certainly captured a lot of attention and captivated a lot of folks right now. To me, though, again, and again, a lot of what we've been working on, getting more into the financial advisor space with Reallocate and acting as a sub-advisor to other financial advisors, you're changing our perspective of looking at a portfolio in its totality, right? How, how, does, how does real estate fit into an overall investment strategy? How does crypto or NFTs, how, you know, how does that fit into an overall investment strategy? Um, looking at things from a more holistic perspective, I think, is something that we've really been you know, focused on lately. And uh, you know, again, I think there's there's room in, in portfolios for all these different asset classes. And I think that's what's so great about what we've been doing. A lot of other really interesting platforms out there and other verticals is getting back to that beginning message of access, right? To be able to have access to all these different investment strategies, I think, is just a really really good time right now as an investor. And you know, we see a lot of innovation out there and a lot of a lot of you know, new ways to access things that you couldn't before. And I think as an investor, more options you have, the, the better you'll be at the end of the day. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one message that I try to share is real estate's great. And so is the stock market and so is crypto. I don't think you have to be necessarily all in on any of them. I think there's room in, in pretty much everybody's portfolio for a little bit of all of it. So I completely agree. Adam, I've appreciated your time. Enjoyed the conversation. For anyone in the audience that's looking to learn more about Real Crowd or connect with you, where is the best place for them to go? Yeah, easiest place is just go to realcrowd.com. You can follow us on, on all of our social media channels at the Real Crowd. Uh, if you want to listen to our podcast, uh, you know whatever your favorite listening service is, it's the Real Estate Investing for Your Future podcast. Uh, and then also, if you want to dig in on any of the specifics of some of the educational pieces we talked about. Uh, you can head to realcrowduniversity.com. That's kind of a, a smattering of all the best content that we've done through our podcasts and eBooks and just a really good kind of educational course over six weeks. Uh, it's going to get you up to speed on the fundamentals of investing in real estate. I'll be sure to put a link to all your resources. And also we talked about that Measure What Matters book. I'll put that in the show notes below as well for anybody that's interested in checking any of that out. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.